don't have a headquarters. I know Cersei sometimes has said that or Nashville or something, but we don't have a headquarters that kind of tells us how to act and how to be structured and who to preach and what to preach. We are our own church. And if any church goes bad, it doesn't affect a whole bunch of them, right? However, however, that does not mean that we don't value our brotherhood or find value in learning from other congregations. We have a connection with each other. Other people of the Lord's church trying their best to live according to the scriptures. We kind of have a camaraderie with people. And one of the churches we're going to look at today, because I think we can learn from other churches, is the church at Ephesus. Now, you can't look at it today. It does not exist, as far as we know. The church at Ephesus is the one church of the New Testament we know the most about because we get reports on it constantly in the New Testament. We get to see it being born in the book of Acts, and we get to see it put on hospice in the book of Revelation. And we see the entire life of one congregation, and we can look at it and go, what in the world went wrong? And we look at it not, not as judgment of them, but as saying to ourselves, this is probably, this is probably something that any congregation can experience. How can we be a church that learns from the best of this congregation and avoids what led to its death by the book of Revelation or the years after that? That's what we're undertaking this morning as we look at the book uh, of, of, uh, of Ephesians. Actually, we're about to go into 1 Timothy, so that's why we're going to be starting this. But we're looking at the church at Ephesus. The city of Ephesus is an interesting place. Fourth largest city in Asia at this time, or the Roman Empire at this time, with four major highways coming through it. And when they traveled back then, they walked, of course, so they rode on animals, but they kind of went at a slow pace, and they would go into places and hear news and hear philosophies in every city they would go through. And so it became the mother city of Asia. That's what it was called. Uh, considered in the first century because like all roads going into Asia lead through Ephesus. So Paul loved the significance of having a church in a city like that. If you look at that, that, that particular picture, it's, a, it's not there now. There are parts of it still in existence. We had somebody in the early service who's been to Ephesus. One of the, the number one place I want to go one of these days is the city of Ephesus. There's a lot still there. Uh, from the ancient world. But this is the Artemis um, temple right here. So this is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, and people would come from all over the place to see this place. And it was um, Zeus's daughter, twin sister to Apollo. So we're talking about something significant, and it was a religion dominated by women and fertility cult stuff. And that is the city. In this city, Paul comes uh, to the synagogue at the end of, uh, of a trip he was taking. He came from Corinth, he comes to Ephesus, and all he does is he preaches in the synagogue for a little while. We don't know how long, but just in passing. But he gets a great reception, and the people all get together and say, stay here, Paul, stay here, Paul. And he would love to, but he can't. He's got to move on, but he leaves some of his people behind. Priscilla and Aquila, who came with him, he leaves in Ephesus because he says this is a significant place to have a church. And he says, I'll be back. And then he leaves. But he wants to come back if it's the Lord's will. Well, while he's gone, Apollos comes through, one of the most well-spoken-of preachers in the first century, very 
smooth tongue, a golden tongue guy. He comes preaching there, but he only stays for a little while. Paul then comes back. He made it a point to come back, and he comes to the synagogue again, and for three months, he's preaching the kingdom of God. I love the song we sang this morning, We'll Be Your Kingdom Until Then. What we are is what God wanted through Paul to establish in Ephesus, the kingdom of God outpost in Ephesus. He preaches that for three months until the Jews can't stand him any longer, and they kick him out, and he goes to the hall of Tyrannus. This is where they would gather and talk about philosophy and stuff. And he was there for three years. Paul doesn't stay anywhere long. For him to anchor himself for three years tells you something about Ephesus and the Ephesian church. Next screen. So that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greek. Paul says through the preaching in Ephesus, he was able to influence lives of people that would make sure that the gospel went into all of Asia. He was able to be in one spot, but influence an entire continent because of it. Paul was very much, that's what he says in Acts chapter 19, is that he was able to get all the, the gospel into all of Asia through Ephesus. But here's what he says to the Corinthians. I'm going to stay in Ephesus till Pentecost for a, for a door of effective work has opened for me and there are many adversaries. This is an incredibly significant location and they're being plagued by adversaries and so I want to be there for a while longer. And that's how Paul starts the church in the first place. But notice how it actually starts in the book of Acts. We're given some amazing details. Number one, the gospel was dramatically demonstrated by Paul in Ephesus. Here's how it was. He would preach, the people came to admire and respect his life and his preaching, and they would take a handkerchief out of their pocket, and they would rub it on Paul, and they would take it home and heal all their family members. I'm not making this up. Look it up, Acts chapter 19. Or he'd be wearing an apron. He's a tent maker. He might work with wood a little bit. And they would take that apron and they would take it and they would go over here and they would drive out an evil demon with it. Is that not weird? I mean, it was like not just Paul's preaching, but his entire embodiment of the gospel was working to, to generate excitement and incredible fire of faith in people. How do we do that today? None of us can do miracles. I'm not saying miracles don't exist. I'm saying miracle workers don't. I've never met anybody that I could go up to and they could heal me or cast out a demon or any number of those things. I think God still does those things, but not through a miracle worker person. So how in the world can we have like a fire like that that gets attention? Well, in the pastorals that we're going to read, 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus, that we're going to study for a while, there's no command to do miracles, but there's an awful lot of commands to do good works, to be involved in, in, in the lives of people doing good things for them. And today, while we can't go and miraculously heal somebody, we can be involved in doing good works in their lives that earns a hearing. So show them Jesus in your good works and then tell them about Jesus with your words and together we will build up the kingdom here until it comes. That's what we're called to do. And that's what Paul did, only he was able to do it miraculously. And don't you know, the excitement would have been high when your preacher can take a handkerchief and heal somebody in a hospital. That is impressive. Second thing you notice, by the way, there's these strange things about these driving out demons. There's this one story about the seven sons of Sceva. 
these Jews begin to watch Paul and admire his ability to take the name of Jesus and work in the lives of other people. And so they decide, we're going we're gonna to try that too. We watch Paul, we listen to what he says. So here's what we're going to do. An exorcist would go over here and they'd say, I, I implore you by Jesus through the name of, uh, of Paul to come out of this man. And they would try to do some name dropping without a relationship. You ever do name dropping without a relationship? Oh yeah, I know so-and-so, right? I know this person, but you don't really, you just know of them, you know their name, but you're trying to impress people. So these people were trying to impress evil spirits by name dropping Jesus and Paul that they didn't really know. They tried this, well, the seven sons of Sceva tried this, and there was a man with an evil spirit in the house. And this man with an evil spirit gets up, and he says, somehow with the demonic speaking, he says, I know Jesus, and I know Paul, but who in the world are you? And he gets up on him, whips him up, beats him up real bad, and they flee from the house, bleeding and naked. This is a great story for junior hires. Bleeding and naked right? You often get in these playground fights with people and you don't really know who won. But when the person runs bleeding and naked, they lost. You get that, right? They lost. They lost this. And what a dramatic thing. And the people, and it says that, that people were just amazed at this story, right? But there's a second thing they did besides these amazing dramatic things is that they applied the truth first to themselves, before we go out into a lost world and try to convince them of the truth of the gospel, let's make sure we apply it to our own lives first. To be people seriously taking in the implication of the gospel in my own life. These people, it says, they were, uh, they were magicians. They tried to read about the magic arts and the dark world and the spiritual world, and they'd read about it, and they'd try to do hocus pocus, and they had all these books, and it says, once they heard the gospel, they realized all that stuff is meaningless. You see, Jesus is superior to all spiritual forces. You get things right with Jesus, and that other stuff makes no difference whatsoever. There's no reason to fear it or study it or, or try to manipulate it because you've got the Lord and you need nothing else. And so these people learned this, and they brought all their books together. And it said some obnoxious amount of money was represented in this pile of books that they burned and it says they confessed their sins and divulged their practices. They didn't just say, well, I'm a sinner. They said, "Here, I'm a sinner, and here is where sin is in my life. And they bring it into the light. And the, there's no fake. There's no hypocrisy. You can't call me a hypocrite when I confess my sin. You can't do it. I've applied it to myself. You remember those of you my age or a little younger? Matthew over here probably remembers this. You remember back when they had records and CDs that they said, if you played them backwards, it says, nyeh, 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 God's dead, God's dead, God's dead. You ever heard that? Anybody heard that? I wanted to know, why is anybody playing their CD backwards? How do you play a CD backwards? I never figured it out. But I know back there, there was a, nyeh, 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 the Lord's dead, the Lord's dead, all this stuff. Right? And so they said, go burn all your CDs and crush them. How many destroyed CDs this way? Anybody do this? Am I the only one in here who knows what I'm talking about? People would do this, and it's a little obnoxious, but that's what people did. When I take seriously, the, you know when Jesus said, cut off your arm and pluck out your eye? This is what he's talking about. You take that stuff, that paraphernalia, you take that residue of that junk in your life, and you completely cut it out with no intention of ever bringing it back out of storage. I'm going to destroy this. 
There's something exciting about a church where people divulge their practices and bring it into the light in order to destroy it. And that's what they're doing. This is like a celebrate recovery for all sinners. And that's what the church should be. They applied it to themselves first. And they first of all said, before we take this out there, let's apply it in here. And it became a real, authentic, genuine church. But they didn't stop there. They then took it into their lives, into the community. They took it into the social world. Here's how real it got. They started believing the message of the gospel. There's one God overall. You don't need to fear Diana. You don't need to fear Artemis. You don't need to fear Zeus. You don't need to worry about all this other stuff. Quit going around, which God's in charge here? How do I keep him happy? What do I need to do to appease him? You, and you're, every, every block in the city is owned by a different God, and you're constantly paranoid about which God's in charge right here, and I don't know what I should be doing right now. Here's what Paul said. Don't worry about all that. There's one God. You obey him, and you can go anywhere in the universe and know you're right with him and at peace with him. Don't worry about all this other stuff. He didn't have to name call the gods or the temples. I don't think his preaching was name calling them at all. He was preaching the truth and the people believed it. And guess what happened? You know what happened from Acts chapter 19. These silversmiths who made a good living out of making little shrines of these gods to make a little household niche in your house to where you could bow down to it at your house and feel like you're doing some extra to, to appease this God. These guys started losing business because nobody was buying it anymore. People were believing it so much it affected the economy. Oh, I'd love that. What would it be like? That every strip club in Memphis gets, gets closed down because Christians start acting like Christians, right? What if Facebook didn't have to, to, to get rid of that post? What would happen if Jesus in your heart got rid of that post? What would it be like? What would it be like if human trafficking wasn't an issue anymore because Christian men actually didn't look at pornography online? What would it be like, how would the world look like if we really started acting like Christians? And you know what? The people in Ephesus found out. The economy changed. The buying patterns of people changed. Their lives changed. Not only did they confess sin and come out into the light and uh, respond to this gospel, but it changed the entire community. How exciting was that? And that's how the church at Ephesus started. Out of this, it comes. It started between the year 50 and 53 is when the church started. And it starts with this power. And it says, it says as a result of all this that they were in awe of the name of Jesus. It wasn't they saw the good works and they saw the lives changed and they were in all the name. We weren't name dropping. The church wasn't name dropping. The church was name living. And it was causing people to know about Jesus and respond. And that's how the church starts. But something happens, y'all. Starts in this great powerful way, this great demonstrative way, and something happens. By AD 58, five years later, Paul's no longer there after that riot in Ephesus. He left, but he's close by in Miletus five years later, and he calls the elders to himself. The elders of Ephesus, the Ephesian church, he calls to Miletus, and they all come, and he says, I'm never going to see you guys again. 
you're not going to see me again. I'm not going to be able to work among you again, but I love you. And I want you to know I've shown love in the way I've lived among you. Is that true? And they said, yes, we, you've loved us. You've loved us and you've loved the world and you share the gospel. And now Paul then says, but I've got to warn you. I already see something happening in Ephesus I'm really concerned about. It's, he's very much like a parent. A parent who's looking at the life of their young people and saying, a young person and saying, I can see dangers in your life and I want to pull you aside and I want to tell you, I'm not getting on to you, I'm just warning you. There's some dangerous things in your environment. Be very careful with it. Kids, when parents feel this way, they will talk to you and I want you to listen to them. They're looking at the world around us, at the temptations that are there, and they're concerned about your soul and your life, and they're saying, I gotta share something with you. And that's what Paul does in Miletus when he calls the Ephesian elders to him. And this is what he says. Pay careful attention to yourselves. Be very, gauge your life and monitor your life carefully, church. Every Sunday when we get together, you know what we're saying to each other? Pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, Paul says, fierce wolves will come among you and that will not spare the flock. You're gonna have some people who fall out of your church and leave your church over false doctrine that comes in. I can see it already. It's been that way the whole time and it's gonna get worse, Paul says. Even from your own selves, you as an eldership, even among you, some are going to speak twisted things. They're going to twist the truth. They're going to make it say the opposite of what it actually says. And you're going to fall after it, right? And disciples will fall away. So be alert, remembering that for three years, I didn't cease night and day to pray and preach and do everything I could to get this in you. Paul is saying to them, five years later, maybe 10 years after it was established, he said, listen, on the horizon is trouble. Be very careful because the church needs to balance this. You love people, but you hold to the truth. 58. Three years later, he writes the letter to the Ephesians. He's writing a full letter. Now they're what? I don't know. I don't have, uh, I, I'm using 50, not 53 as a date because I really don't know when it started. But somewhere 10, 12 years later, he writes the book of the Ephesians. The first three chapters is all about what God's done for us. Let's review the gospel and remember how much we owe him and gratitude is nurtured. But here's what he writes in chapter 4. So that we may no longer be children. I'm telling you all this stuff so that we're not going to be a bunch of spiritually immature people tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of teaching and by the human and cunningness and craftiness and deceitful schemes. So there's people out there, there's a new book that you can read and it leads people astray. There's a new preacher that everybody's following and there's a new fad that everybody's offering and you're running from this one and the next one and the next one and every time the wind blows there's somebody saying something different about what the Bible teaches and we're all going with it. I want you to be mature enough to be able to stand with all the winds blowing and you stand just on the truth. But, verse 15, speak that truth with love. Don't lose your love. 
At the end of it, he says in this, when each one part is doing its work properly, making the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I want you to be standing on the truth, but I want you to speak it and live it and embody it in love for people. And then at chapter six, I didn't put this on the screen, but you know it, the armor of God passage. He says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. We are not fighting people. We are not getting into arguments with people and hating people. We are attacking positions and doctrines and, and, and all these philosophies, but we are not hating people. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Don't hate people. It, every time I read Ephesians 6, I think of Finding Nemo, where the sharks are trying to learn that fish are friends not, yeah, you know this. Wesley answered first. That's a little weird, isn't it? Fish are friends, not food. Can I tell you something? The people of the world we love don't label. They are not positions. They are not behaviors. They are people God loves and we gotta be very careful as we start defending the truth and standing for the truth that we don't get real frustrated and short with the people who don't believe it yet. We cannot lose sight of the fact that that truth needs to be presented in love. And that's very easy to sever these. In Facebook, we are doing this because it's not, we don't have a relationship. We don't have an understanding of our tone of voice. We're just sending articles to each other, trying to passively, aggressively teach people who are not gonna change they don't know us and they don't hear our tone that's Ephesians and then another year or so later in 63 Paul writes the letters to Timothy Timothy is now preaching in Ephesus Paul left him there and so now he has another way of influencing the Ephesian church, not just by his letters and not just by himself or through the elders. It's now through Timothy. He's trying to encourage them. And I want you to listen to this. This was read very well a moment ago, but I want you to notice the underlines. I urged you, Paul says to Timothy, he gives the purpose of writing this letter. When I went to Macedonia, I left you there in Ephesus so that you can charge certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer. Tell them to stop preaching this. It's not true. Don't devote yourselves to myths and endless genealogies. Trey avoided genealogies. That is a very weird word. Genealogies. I don't blame you one bit. I don't like genealogies either. Which promotes speculation. All these people saying, you know why Paul wrote this? And blah, 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 blah. And all of a sudden it doesn't really mean what it said because that's not what he wrote it for. They have this very intricate way of making these arguments of turning scripture around, twisting it around, right? But notice this, he says, I, don't, I want you to charge them not to teach that way anymore, but verse, verse five, the aim of our charge is love. That needs to be your motive. That needs to be the reason you're saying it. That's where you're wanting to lead them to. Don't do this hatefully. Don't do this where you're so solid on your doctrine, you slam people up against the wall to convince them that you're telling the truth. Love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, sincere faith. You've gotta hold these in balance. 
he says to Timothy, toward the end of the century, there's other information from Ephesus. The, the apostle John, the last one to be alive, he died naturally. He's living in Ephesus toward the end of his life. So when he writes 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, he is in Ephesus writing to other churches. And his message, does anybody know what the dominant message of John is? Come on, there's one word. It's called love. But he says, but do not let doctrine become false. If they ever say Jesus did not come in the flesh, do not put up with them. There's a limit. But even when you do that, you love that's what he's saying in the letters of John. But I want you to listen to the last thing we get about Ephesus. In the letter that John wrote, but Jesus is speaking, Revelation chapter 2. Listen to this. It's the last transmission we've got. The last word. I know your works. I know your toil. Your patient endurance. How you cannot bear with those who are evil. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and aren't and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. Doesn't that sound amazing? Shouldn't we be going, what a church! I want a church like that! But I have this against you. You've abandoned the love you had at first. Acts 19 loving each other, applying the truth to their own life, applying it to other people and loving people and building it up. By, by AD 100, they've abandoned that love. Now, you want to say, listen, you, here's what I want to say. Yeah, but you know what? That's okay. You got the truth. But listen to what he goes on to say. Remember from where you've fallen. Repent. This requires repentance. This lack of love needs to be changed. You need to get down front. This is no little thing. This is no little optional tag-on of tone of voice as long as I got the truth. No, this is something you go forward for. Repent. Notice, if not, I will come to you and remove the lampstand from its place. I'm leaving, Jesus says. You act without love and I'm leaving. You can go on and have Sunday churches, but I won't be there. Sunday services, I won't be there. There are churches throughout the land who are meeting today, but Jesus ain't there. Weird, huh? That's serious. That's scary because I'm going to tell you, in 50 years, they went from being on fire and absolutely in tune with God to doing all the right things but lacking love, and Jesus was about to close the doors down. What do we get from this? And you're going to say to me, well, what's the big deal with this history lesson? Here's a couple of things we better listen to. Absolutely, we must continue teaching sound doctrine absolutely must. Now, this is an old term. Many of you have been in a church forever, right? Church of Christ forever will recognize this and say, this is a very conservative term, sound doctrine. We used to go around to hear preachers and you'd come out, well, he was sound or he wasn't. Anybody ever heard this? Is he being sound? That's a weird term. It's a medical term, which means healthy. Is this healthy teaching? Is this biblical healthing teaching that Jesus and God offered us in his word to build us up so that we mature? Is that what this is? Or is this, is this junk food? Is this Twinkies? Or is this broccoli? 
You see, because here's the thing, it's easy to get people on board with Twinkies. It has this wonderful taste in our mouths and it's real easy to like. It just comes naturally, right? We want this and it just makes our body crave it, right? So junk food is false doctrine and people teach it all the time. People, people teach it so that I can get people to follow because they wanna hear it. It's entertaining maybe, maybe it's entertaining. I know some churches that are really conservative that it's not preaching unless it's on baptism. And here's the reason why I think that's true. Because they've mastered that already. I've mastered this. I've already done this. So you're preaching. Great. Get them, to, get them to be baptized and I don't have to do a thing. I'm leaving this morning going, yeehaw, I've got it mastered because I've got this. But what about, what about impatience? And what about loving people? And what about learning how to be patient with other people as they try to come around and accept the truth in their life? And you've got to suspend your judgment for a while as you allow that to work in their life. And this is very hard. Elders have meetings all the time. How do we balance this truth that we know and this person that we love? And how do we be patient with them and give them time to wrap this around their heart and the spirit to drive it home without us being a judgment call that drives them away? This is no easy thing. But the church grapples with this stuff when it's a true church. But listen, we've got to continue. There, there's so much falsehood in this world, and there's so many ways that people are twisting the truth. And if we win them to our love, but we don't have sound doctrine, we haven't saved them, we're just going to hell with them in a big basket. But the second part of this is we absolutely must continue to love people, even as we're preaching the truth. It's our motive, it's our goal, it's why we're doing it, it's where we're heading to. We must communicate not just God's will, but God's love, because it said, God so loved the world, he sent his son. And he doesn't just wanna send them to say he did it, he wants to send them so, so that they'll accept it. And we wanna do our best to communicate that same motive that Jesus did. So you can't carry a true message with a posture or a tone of hatred or of frustration and impatience with people and expect it to be heard. It's just as much false doctrine when it's spoken with the wrong tone as it is when it's twisted up with untruth. We want a hearing of the truth, but you win that hearing with love. Man, this is hard. I wanna show you a chart. I finally just didn't know how to communicate, so put this chart up here, because if you're a visual learner like me, I need a visual thing. I want you to look at these four corners. No truth, no love, that's in the top left-hand corner. You're just out there, you, have, you don't stand for anything, you don't really care about people, and that's where you are. Then below that is there's no truth there, but we love. We hold each other's hands, and we sing kumbaya, but we don't stand for anything, we don't transform our lives, we don't submit ourselves to scripture, we just kumbaya, my Lord, and we just sing together with everybody of all different kinds of faith, no, right? That's kind of just this sentimental hogwash, right? Upper corner on the right, truth, but no love. This would be total legalism right here. This is where they got to in Romans chapter 2. This is where Paul says, even though I speak with the words of men and of angels, but I do not have love, it's empty. It's like a band playing cymbals. 
How many would go to a one-hour band program and the only instrument there was the cymbals? Anybody want to do that? You just go and they go for an hour. You want to try it right now? You want to try it? No, of course you don't. That's what truth without love sounds like. And many of you grew up in a church like this. Don't want to do that. I love the truth. What you want is truth and love together. That's what you want. And I think I'm trying to figure out what that looks like because it's very delicate. I'll explain that with just one line here in a minute. But it's, I want to hold on to the truth and not budge it. I want to be faithful to what God's word is because I believe it's 100% accurate. It's the only basis of truth. It's the only confidence we can have. It's the only thing we know is true, even beyond my own feelings and desires. It's what I know is true. I want to hold on to it. But I want to love people at the same time. What does that look like? And our world is hard. Because our world says this is not possible. Our world says you've got to love, and if telling the truth about their behaviors is, is something that you want to do, you can't do that and also love. But I disagree, and Scripture does too. We can tell the truth and love at the same time. But here's what the challenge is. How, here's the question that guides me in this. How can we sustain an insistent hold on the truth in face of so much falsehood in our world without losing our love for humanity? How can I do this and not grow bitter with the world and shake a fist at the world? How dare you offer this kind of lifestyle to our young people? Listen, they're doing what the world does, but we've got to love them. We've got to love them enough to tell them the truth. And even when they think we're hating them, we've got to do the best we can to actually love them. How do you do this? Ephesus couldn't figure it out, and we're going to be challenged too. We're the church on the hill. I want to be the church on the hill that absolutely stands for the words of God as written in the New Testament, in the Scriptures, and never budge from it. But I don't want to just be known for that. I want to be known as the church that loves people, puts those two things together, and is able to navigate this. Ephesus couldn't. They died. We have another chance in the same kind of world that they were in. I want Valley View to be in that quadrant right there, circled in red. Let's be a group of people who live this way in our individual lives. Do not get bitter. Do not lash out at the world. Do not speak bad, ill of the world all over Facebook about how bad people are, how bad things are. Let's not do that. Let's speak in love. Let's speak out of relationship that's real, that's genuine, that's first of all applied to ourselves, and then we try to live it in the world we live in, and then we try to proclaim it to people as accurately as possible, all out of a motive of love. That's Valley View, Church of Christ, where we want to be on this hill this morning maybe you've never heard the truth maybe you never heard the truth you need to name Jesus from your lips because he is the way the truth and the life and you've never known that and this morning you need to be introduced to him through your confession in the waters of baptism but more likely there are people in here the need to confess and repent of certain sins of maybe bitterness and resentment and anger and hatred in their heart. And you might say, but that's no big deal compared to the truth. I beg to differ because that's not what Ephesians 2, what Revelation 2 says about Ephesus. 
I want to call us to be repentant of that attitude and tone of our heart that gets short with people who have lifestyles that are radically different from the truth. We love them and speak the truth in that love as a way to get a hearing. If anyone needs to repent of that, you might be able to do it right in your pew, but you might need to see it in us. And this morning you have that opportunity. Whatever is your response, make it known now as we stand and sing the invitation song. Hark the gentle voice of Jesus, fall of tender.